1: I am Dean Linke, and as the host of Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast, when you get a Hall of Famer on the show, sometimes they can do a better job of setting the table. So let's do just that.
2: Hi, this is Kevin Payne. I'm honored to be included in the 2021 U.S. Soccer Hall of Fame class. And I'm delighted to be on this week's Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast with Christian Labors and Dean Linke. We tell stories from the glory years, and ponder the future of soccer at all levels so we'll be right back with Kevin
1: Payne after this message from the ECNL
0: as the game continues to evolve in the United States the ECNL remains the standard of excellence in youth soccer the elite clubs National League has grown to include over 200 clubs and nearly 50,000 players across the country with a robust competition platform for teams Educational resources for coaches and clubs and unparalleled identification and development opportunities for players alongside its member clubs collaborating to create a better future. The ECNL continues to raise the game every day. The ECNL is more than a league. Welcome back to breaking the line. The ECNL podcast. Once again, here's Dean.
1: The National Soccer Hall of Fame announced last week the four members of its 2021 class. They include former D.C. United forward and four-time MLS Cup winner Jaime Moreno, two-time Women's World Cup winner and three-time Olympic gold medalist Christy Pierce-Rampone and ex-U.S. Men's National Team defender Steve Cerundolo and former D.C. United executive Kevin Payne. All four will be inducted at a ceremony October 2nd at Toyota Stadium in Frisco, Texas, along with former U.S. Men's National Team Captain Carlos Bocanegra, who's been on this program, and Andres Cantor, whose 2020 inductions were postponed last year due to the COVID-19 pandemic. The ceremony will be followed by the Hall of Fame game between FC Dallas and Minnesota United FC and a concert featuring Willie Nelson. Kevin Payne, who just announced he is retiring as the chairman of U.S. Club Soccer, spent 15 glory-laden seasons as president and general manager of D.C. United, first from 1996 through 2001 and then from 2004 through 2012. During that time, D.C. United won MLS Cups in 96, 97, 99, and 2004, as well as the U.S. Open Cup in 1996 and 2008. From 2001 to 2004, Payne was an executive of the Anschutz Entertainment Group, which owned several MLS clubs at the time. In the 2013 season, he served as president of Toronto FC. Current New England Revolution and former D.C. United and U.S. National Team head coach and Hall of Famer Bruce Arena, as well as former U.S. Soccer president and fellow Hall of Famer Sunil Galati, actually surprised Payne with the news of his election to the Hall of Fame during a lunch meeting last week in Mount Pleasant, South Carolina. Our very own Christian Labors was also there, which is awesome, and I know he treasured being there, and we will get to that. But first, Kevin Payne, having worked for you in the late 80s as part of my first job with U.S. soccer in Colorado Springs, I do say this from my heart, congratulations, Kevin, on this well-deserved honor Congratulations on being inducted into our National Soccer Hall of Fame.
2: Well, thanks very much, Dino. It was a, a big surprise and a, a tremendous honor. It's hard for me to express how much it means to me after 30 plus years in the business. And it's always a pleasure to talk to you. Remember when you joined us as an intern working for John Polis?
1: That's right. And we we played a little basketball, Kevin. I feel like we got to get that story out of the way before we get to the good stuff.
2: Yeah. So we used to play basketball at the Colorado College in um, Colorado Springs at lunchtime. I don't know how many people know this, but Dean was actually a very good basketball player. And and that was really your primary sport, right?
1: It was, yeah. Uh, And
2: I I grew up playing streetball. I was much older than Dean, but I grew up playing streetball. So I knew how to... I knew how to play as well. And I was dribbling a ball. I think we were playing half court. And Dean decided he was going to dive in and steal it. And I just turned away from him with my body. And I thought he would stop. And he didn't. And just ran right into my ribs and cracked one of my ribs. That was fun. (laughs) I feel,
1: by the way, I feel terrible about that. But, you know, not too many people can you know, like me, that will never make a Hall of Fame can say I broke the rib of a Hall of Famer, Kevin, so at least I have that, my man. Yeah, well, I mean,
2: you need to embellish the story at some point and make it be, you know, you broke LeBron James's rib (laughs) on basketball. Well, I'll tell you what, let's go
1: back to those early days and then Christian will dive in, but obviously... That hire right around the time of the 1990 World Cup for you, you know, really was a big move for you. I mean, a lot bigger than even for me, although I I think everything that I have today because of that move. But what do you remember about those early days? Because I believe at the time it was actually the Keith and Brenda Walker regime that you were a part of. And then you switched over to the Hank Steinbrecher and Alan Rothenberg regime. Is that accurate?
2: Well, yeah, kind of. I really pursued an opportunity with U.S. soccer very very hard all through 1989, and was fortunate to get to know Werner Fricker. I was living in Vail, Colorado and working in the ski industry. Werner had a home there and came as my guest to the World Ski Championships opening ceremonies, which I was responsible for. I had already applied for the job as executive director of u.s soccer anyway after a long long period of time and a lot of conversations i finally was hired by werner although we didn't that job didn't exist technically they needed to have a rule change at the next agm so i was hired as the national administrator you know it was a different time although some things never change so i quit my job in Bell, moved my family to colorado springs and Went into the office and worked for a couple of days. And then Keith Keith and I were actually sharing a really large office. And Keith said, well, tomorrow, why don't you come in a little bit late? I've got an important call I have to be on here. You know, you can't be in the room for it. I thought, OK, well, that's kind of weird. but Well, it turned out that there was an executive committee meeting of the Federation, and uh, they were deciding whether to ratify my hiring or not. It actually went, it was 3-3. In those days, the president didn't vote unless there was a tie. So it was 3-3, and uh, Werner voted, obviously, to break the tie in my favor. I don't know. I mean, Christian, you're a lawyer. It probably would have been a pretty good case. (laughs) They decided not to go through with the the hire, but... It's really interesting because at that time, the executive committee was the president, the vice president, the chairman of the youth, chairman of the adults, chairman of the pros, and I want to say the past president. The youth and the adults voted against me. The person who was representing the pro council voted against me. That was Dan Counts. Who later worked for me? It was a typical. Some things never change, so it was basically an attempt by the youth and the adults to curtail the power of the president, Werner Fricker. Some things don't change with U.S. soccer. We waste <laughs> too much time on stuff like that and far too little time trying to figure out how to be better at the the game that we all love. But yeah, so that was pretty. That was kind of interesting, and then that summer, in spite of qualifying for the World Cup, in spite of uh, you know going to the World Cup, Werner was voted out of office in favor of Allen. So the, the rule change was approved that Werner had submitted to create the position of executive director, but Allen came in with Hank and had promised Hank for his support that job. So Allen came to Colorado Springs about, a few weeks later ostensibly to see the operation i you know i spent the whole day with him i remember that Do you remember him coming and yeah. so he i spent the whole day with him i didn't really know him very well at all when i took him back to the airport he said you know i didn't want to tell you this before but the main reason i came here was to decide whether i wanted you to stay around <laughs> so he said, This is a great start to a job, Kevin. I know. I, know. I should have known that the, the Federation was not going to be the easiest pathway. But he said, I, I do want you to stay around. And, you know, can you work with Hank? And I said, Yeah, I'm sure I can work with Hank. I'm doing this because I want the game to, I want to do my part to make the game prosper. So I ended up accepting the role as deputy executive director and director of marketing. And uh, the rest is history.
1: Well, there was many layers after that. I'll let Christian dive in as we get to those other layers, because obviously when you got to D.C. United, you lit that thing on fire in a good way. I mean, you guys were red hot. We were, in fact, it's ironically, I worked for Dan Counts when we lost to you guys in the second MLS Cup. So again, yeah. the connections are crazy. Go ahead.
2: And danny's a, Dan's a great guy, and we're good friends. He had nothing against me. It was just the political alignment... At that time, was the uh, particularly it was the the youth and the pros trying to create problems for Warner? I got the votes wrong. So Paul Steele was the treasurer, and he was the main troublemaker. He voted against me, and he aligned with the pros and the youth.
3: It kind of <laughs> sounds like Michael Jordan's Hall of Fame induction speech. You know, there was there was yeah. a list of wrongs at the beginning. Yeah. <laughs> But I think I think to answer your previous question, there might have been a promissory estoppel claim um, that you could have uh, asserted at some level. That's right. So, I mean, obviously, your career uh, has gone gone through U.S. soccer and MLS predominantly before your time here at U.S. club soccer, where you got into your maybe favorite space of youth soccer which I'm sure you you can talk about. But when you look back at the time that you had at MLS, DC United, or whether it was when you were managing multiple teams, I think most people would be shocked to think that one person was managing multiple teams in the league at one point because of the state of the league. Maybe uh, can you talk a little bit about what was going on at that point and what you were doing?
2: You know, at the beginning, the company that I was working for and later running Soccer USA Partners. the Two British guys that founded that company, Edward Lees and Alan Pascoe, were convinced of the opportunity in the US for the sport. So it was logical for them to s- express interest in putting together a group for this new league. So we met with Alan in very early 94. We met with Alan in San Diego at an event that we were doing. And then again, he came to uh, a little bit later that spring, he came to New York, we met again, and we pretty much committed that we were gonna put a group together and enter the league. We were, I think we were the third, we were either the second or third commitment he had. Lamar Hunt was the first. So I ended up going out and with, the, with some help from Donaldson, Lufkin, and Junrette, who were hired by Allen. As the investment bankers helping put the league together, I uh, recruited an investor group led by George Soros and managers in his fund. The league started, I often joke that really none of us had any idea what we were doing. We were very enthusiastic, but not very knowledgeable. I was fortunate. I had some really great people that I had worked with at Soccer USA Partners, in particular. A woman named Betty D'Angelo, who Dean knows, who had been around the game forever, and really is one of the one of the three principal architects of the women's national team program. And then Stephen Zach, who worked with me for many many years at DC United, and uh, you know was really a terrific guy, and and did all the did all the work that I didn't want to do. Never cared about attention or limelight just got the job done. You know, we started out, I I hired Bruce. Bruce said, I want to hire Bob Bradley. As soon as I met Bob, I, you know, really liked him a lot. We hit it off. And so we had arguably the two best coaches in U.S. soccer history on the same staff, which helped. Betty found the old Redskins training facility, which was the first purpose-built training facility in the NFL. It was built by Edward Bennett Williams when he was running the team for Jack Ken Cook. And they, you know, when the Redskins had their very good years under George Allen and then later Joe Gibbs, they always credited that facility uh, as being a big edge. So it kind of served the same purpose for us. Everybody else in the league was scrambling for, you know, where their offices were nowhere near their wherever they trained they sometimes you know san jose didn't have a settled training site for years and you know they would train certain days of the week they'd train at different places um we had a real training home that helped us a great deal and you know we had some key players that one of whom is entering the hall with me which i'm thrilled about in jaime moreno well, I'll, t- I'll talk more about the significance of that maybe a little bit later. But so 2000, 2001, you have to remember that uh, the tech bubble had just burst at the end of 99, or I, I forget the timing exactly. But I can remember sitting at MLS board meetings with certain board members arguing that we needed to find ways to accelerate losses because they needed them to offset gains in their tech related businesses which for the most part were not their principal businesses they were offshoots but they were making so much money that uh, they actually wanted to invest more in mls so that's not really a great you know that's not a great business strategy and uh, we got very extended we were hemorrhaging money and the amount of money we were losing each year was very unpredictable we were making short term decisions on a regular basis We had no leadership or very little leadership from the league office. This was before Don Garber joined. It was a mess. So then Don joined the league in late 99. Things came to a head in 2000, 2001. We had some of the same problems with ownership that had plagued the NASL in the sense that uh, there was not alignment among the owners in strategy. And there were owners with really pretty vastly disparate levels of resources. Ultimately, it's a a long story, and I won't go into the whole thing, but ultimately, Phil Anschutz stepped up and said, we're going to double down in some ways on our investment in certain media rights. We created what became Soccer United Marketing, and basically, he engineered and led a, a workout of the business. Lamar Hunt stepped up and said, I'll, I'll take the risk with you. Phil committed to doing six teams, Lamar three, and then the Kraft family said, we'll take responsibility for our team and we'll, we'll stay in it as well. So at that point, I was really responsible for six of the 10 teams in the league. I couldn't be involved at all with the competitive side for obvious reasons, even even with DC United. So it was an interesting time for me because I was involved in management that was a little more distant than anything I'd ever done before. You know i was I was responsible for the financial results of teams in San Jose, Colorado, Los Angeles, New York, d c. It wasn't just walking out of my office and walking down the hall to the sales office to find out what was going on. So I learned a lot from it. At the same time, we were adopting real discipline on the league side and particularly on player spending. And the objective was to make the losses predictable and decreasing so that if we talk to new investors, we could give them a real idea of how much commitment they would be asked for. You know, we were able to, to sell Colorado to uh, Stan Kroenke, who was just beginning uh, his big investment in sports. And then we sold uh, DC United. And at almost the same time, New York was sold to Red Bull. So progress was made. Chicago was the other team you know, we kind of accomplished what we set out to. And then it, then it was just a matter of time until other investors came in for the other teams. So but it was very close. It was very touch and go. I mean, the league, if it were not for Phil, the league without question would have ended.
3: So you're, you're running six out of, I believe that's 10 of the teams at the time in a league that is hemorrhaging money, that is struggling to find investors. Now we can fast forward many, many years to a league that's doing far, far better and at some point, your time in MLS comes to a close and an opportunity in youth soccer comes. And I believe, and I, I'll, I'll quote, paraphrase this, but I believe your probably first response to a job in youth soccer would have been something like Over My Dead Body. But you ended up at U.S. Club Soccer. Give a little background as to how you ended up at U.S. Club Soccer and what about youth soccer made you Change your opinion of what you wanted to do here in, in the next step in your career after MLS?
2: Yeah. So, you know, I had uh, sold DC United on, for, for Will Chang. We sold 55% of it. And then I was recruited by Toronto, went to Toronto, which I loved. But Toronto was part of Maple Leaf Sports Entertainment. That company hired a new CEO who I knew very well, Tim Wywicki. We had worked together at AEG but we quickly realized that Tim wanted to do things in a different way than I wanted to do them. And ultimately Tim was the boss. So I agreed to leave, you know, a reasonably amiable parting of the ways I had a long-term guaranteed contract, which made it a little more amiable from my end. And then I was at the NSCAA convention before it was renamed United soccer coaches in Philadelphia and I always used to try to get together with Ken Chardier at that event when I was there because Ken and I went. We were friends from the trip to Trinidad. That's when I met Ken, the national team trip to Ken, to Trinidad.
3: The trip where every ticket in the stadium was sold twice. Is that yeah. the, uh, the That's the trip?
2: one. So Ken asked me to go to dinner, but he—I don't think he had any particular agenda. We just we did this anytime we were together in the same. City, we tried to get together for lunch or or dinner. I was aware of U.S. club soccer because I was on the board of U.S. soccer, but I didn't know a whole lot about the nuances. I had joined Ken years before in 1998, I believe it was. No, it might have been 2000 in uh, Los Angeles for lunch. He was having lunch with Phil Wright and asked me to join them. So I kind of had a little bit of understanding of his vision of US club soccer right from the very beginning. But anyway, we went to dinner and he said, well, this may be a crazy thought, but would you have any interest in running US club soccer? And my first reaction, and this is almost word for word, was I would rather poke myself in the eye with a pencil than work in youth soccer. And so he said, well, I I get it. I know most of your exposure has been to USYS and the state associations. So I, I understand why you might say that. But he said, you know, we operate differently. I think we have the opportunity to do things the right way. Would you be willing to consult me, consult the organization for a year and then decide? So, you know, Bill Sage was in the process of preparing to step down. So I told Kenya, yeah, I'll do it. I'm not very sanguine about the outcome, but I'll, I'll do it. So I went around and visited with lots of people all over the country. And I, I realized that actually, US club soccer fundamentally was different. Youth sports is youth sports. There's still a lot of things about it that are really kind of unsavory. But I, I felt like at least there was the opportunity to do things or begin to do things the right way, where I didn't think there was that opportunity in USYS with the state associations, and I still don't. So I ended up telling Ken some point, like in the fall, I said, yeah, you know, I think I'll do it. I think, because I think I had thoughts about how we could change the environment for players and their parents I had been chairing the technical committee for US soccer, and we were working on putting together the academy for years. I did have some real understanding of what the challenges were that were facing parents in particular, and how parents had been conditioned to demand the wrong things from clubs. And clubs then were responding and providing the wrong things. Uh, because that's what the marketplace wanted. So I thought, well, maybe there's an opportunity here to begin to change what the marketplace expects and understands. And that's the reason I ended up, a good, that and the fact that the organization's offices were based in Charleston. Yeah. Uh, that was the reason I, I took the job. That never
1: hurts indeed. We'll be back with more on Kevin Payne's tenure at US Club. His Hall of Fame career and so much more on Breaking the Line, the ECNL
0: podcast. ECNL Boys is partnering with Puma for the second year, driving sport forward with the leading products and the next generation of pros who wear them. Puma has proven themselves as the fastest sports brand in the world, the fastest innovation, the fastest players, and the fastest products in the game. They're the perfect partner to complement the speed and talent of our teams. In keeping with their mantra of forever faster, Puma introduces the world's fastest boot, the Ultra. The only boot engineered for speed, the Ultra combines a woven upper with a lightweight outsole for direct forward motion, speed, and acceleration. It's the best in the game, designed for the best players in the game. Soccer.com is proud to partner with the ECNL to support the continued development of soccer in the U.S. at the highest levels. We've been delivering quality soccer equipment and apparel to players, fans, and coaches since 1984. Living and breathing the beautiful game ourselves, our goal at Soccer.com is to inspire you to play better, cheer louder, and have more fun. Visit Soccer.com today to check out our unmatched selection of gear, expert advice, and stories of greatness at every level of the game.
1: Welcome back to Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast. Dean Link, your host, with Christian Labors, the president and CEO of the ECNL, and Kevin Payne, who's headed into the 2021 U.S. Soccer Hall of Fame class. And, Kevin, I don't know about you, but I'm kind of looking forward to the Willie Nelson part of that event as well. Yeah, I think we'll probably all have a chance to get a contact high. Anyway, <laughs> should be fun. Be great. Well, I'll let Christian uh, dig back into uh, your time at U.S. Club. Go ahead, Christian obviously with your
3: background in U.S. soccer, then MLS, and then you come into youth soccer and, and the politics in youth soccer can be overwhelming. I was a corporate lawyer and I, th- I found corporate law politics to be far simpler and less nuanced than, than soccer. But now you have a soccer landscape that, you know, that has the state association. So 54 of those, it's got U.S. soccer, it's got MLS, it's got U.S. club, it's got all these different leagues, ECNL being one prominent one, obviously, but when you look at the youth landscape and with your background and position in these other major organizations before U.S. Club, how do you look at the youth landscape now as you're stepping down and how do you see it now? How do you see the future? What would you change in it if you could change things in it? Go open-ended with that.
2: You know, I think it's evolving and I think it's evolving in a good way. It's, it's far from ideal, but I'm going to Give some credit to the Development Academy. A big part of what we tried to accomplish when we established the DA was to improve the day-to-day environment for players, especially, you know, quote-unquote, elite players. I do think that the DA changed that dynamic,
3: and I'll, I think I'll, I'll agree with you on on that, Kevin. I, I used to analogize that the DA kind of was like throwing a hand grenade into a, into a room and it blew up the existing status quo and the existing structures in a way that then I think created huge momentum and opportunity for change in so many ways. But without that first disruption, much would be different.
2: Yeah, and so I think a lot of clubs and leagues learned from that and, and started to do things much better you know, it wasn't long after that, that you began the ECNL at the time, originally a girls only league, but a similar foundation that the quality of games was more important. The quality of training was more important than was the case for, for most players. So I think that we've moved, you know, it's kind of a post da world now. The Federation used to always say if clubs were doing things the right way, and if leagues were doing things the right way, we wouldn't need the development academy. And I think to some extent, that's now, I think we're probably in a place where that's true. What I find interesting is that at multiple levels, things are being done better. No matter what level on the boy's side or the girl's side, you want to say is the highest level. What we're seeing is that even levels below that are following the same principles. There's a much higher value placed on the quality of training. I think most kids now experience, you know, a ratio of probably three to four training days for every game day. So I think that that's much better. What hasn't changed, the sort of institutional politics are, they are what they are. And it's frustrating. You know, I always joke, similar to your joke about corporate law. I always joke that at least when I was in MLS and professional professional soccer, I knew who the opponent was, and we we generally competed really hard, but we also understood that we were kind of, you know, boat together. So there was a fair amount of cooperation. I, I think that the what's the sort of soul-sapping aspect of youth youth soccer, and I think youth sports in general, is not the institutional politics, but the, the dynamic that exists between parents in particular and the providers. So whether that's, you know, youth soccer clubs or swim clubs or whatever it might be, there's a lot of people making a lot of money and many of whom are doing things right way or at least as close to the right way as they're able but there's a lot of pretty unscrupulous people that don't really care about doing things the right way they are just committed to making money and they figure out how to do that so that to me that's the part of viewed sports that's more disheartening i can live with the battles with the state associations you know that is kind of is what it is. The intellectual dishonesty of a lot of people running soccer clubs or leagues and their desire to monetize everything about the experience at the expense often of the quality of the experience is what I find much more disheartening. But it's not a hopeless case either, because I do think that more and more people are understanding that It doesn't have to be that way. You know, that's, uh, as you well know, that's the whole point of our Players First initiative is to try to inform parents about what their kid's experience is likely to be and how to seek out clubs that will provide the best experience in in a really holistic way, not simply who's gonna win
3: the most games. It seems in a lot of these things, we all want results in timeframes that are really, really unrealistic. We understand that from a developmental perspective. It's years to develop a player, many, many years to develop a player to to their potential, or even to make significant uh, changes in players. You look at MLS, I mean, it's 30, almost 30 years old at this point. And then you look at the game more broadly culturally and what you're talking about now within the landscape of youth, We think we're we're measuring progress in in months or years, but we really need to be looking in chunks of years in terms of seeing real, real change. And I I do agree with you. There's been a huge amount of change since 2007, and I think it's accelerating in that way, but there's still a long way to go.
2: Yeah, I'm pretty confident you agree with this. That Certainly, at some level, the competition that exists between various providers is probably a good thing in a lot of ways. It makes you constantly try to reassess how do you do a better job. The problem is when that reassessment just leads leads uh, an individual to say, I'm not going to worry about doing things the right way. I'm going to give parents what they think they want, even though it's maybe not the right thing. And that's the part, you know, it, we think it's so important to educate parents I don't think parents want a bad experience for their kids in soccer, but they're too, they're too willing to accept that it's sort of a straight line process. You know, if you join my club, then I'm gonna get your kid into the school that you want them to go to. It really doesn't work quite like that. As you you know better than I, it's a lot more nuanced than that.
3: Except in the sales process.
2: <laughs>
1: yeah. Speaking of sales process, we got to take one more break to pay the bills, and we come back, we'll learn a little bit more about how Kevin Payne found out he's headed to the Hall of Fame. Exciting moment with some exciting and distinguished people. This is Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast. Stay with us.
0: From athletes just starting to turn heads to some of the best athletes to ever play their games, Gatorade shows that they are the proven fuel of the best. For the athletes who give everything, nothing beats Gatorade. The studied tested and proven fuel of the ECNL. Nike is a proud sponsor of ECNL Girls. Nothing can stop what we can do together to bring positive change to our communities. You can't stop sport because hashtag you can't stop our voices. Follow Nike on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter.
1: Welcome back to Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast, heading into the U.S. Soccer Hall of Fame, the 2021 class so well-deserved, honored to have worked with him and watched his rise, talking about Kevin Payne. And Christian, you were like a fly on the wall for the big announcement as well. I was absolutely a fly on the wall.
3: But, you know, the big surprise for Kevin, and, and Kevin, you can talk, I'm sure, for days about this, but Bruce Serena and Sunil Gulati, two of your closest friends in the sport, I got to sit around a kitchen table for about three hours uh, that afternoon and hear some unbelievable stories from back in the day. But talk a little bit about what it meant to you to have those two guys come down, surprise you, pretend it's a retirement party at first, before uh, giving you the uh, the news about the induction. If you can talk a little bit about those two guys and what they've meant to you in your career and and as friends.
2: I was really, you know, gobsmacked, as they say, Uh <laughs> I was walking up the back stairs of the restaurant with Mike Kona, and I saw a camera, like kind of a professional video camera, which is not that unusual because it's a beautiful spot. And there's often people there doing filming or shooting B-roll for commercials or whatever. But then I saw Alex Reben, our events director, shooting with her cell phone. And I was like, I actually turned around. I don't know if you, if you watch the video, I turned around and looked behind me to see what she was videoing. And then so when I walked up and saw everybody there, I saw, you were one of the first people I saw, and I was not expecting to see you there. Then I saw my grandsons, and I was like, what's going on? And then I hear these two voices behind me say, you know, happy retirement. And I knew Bruce's voice immediately. I was very deeply moved that they had come down and, in the middle of a week to what I thought was a retirement party. And then, you know, when they told me it was, yeah, it was a retirement party, but it was really a hall of fame party. I was really, I was completely flabbergasted and, and thrilled. You hired Bruce and Bruce
3: coached for you at DC United, your relationship with Sunil, where did that get started?
2: Well, Sunil was a volunteer with us soccer. I can remember riding up in a chairlift with, Werner Fricker. And he had told me that morning at breakfast that he was planning to hire me. But this was like in the spring of 89. I didn't get hired until November. And he was talking about the different people who he kind of trusted. And he mentioned this guy, Sunil Gulati. And he always called him Sunil Gulati. I had a friend growing up whose name was Gulati. Albert Galotti, G-A-L-O-T-T-I. So I just assumed, okay, this is an Italian guy that is working with Werner. And Werner explained he was a volunteer. He was a young, at that point, he was still, he was getting his master's degree in economics at Columbia. He had the title of chairman of the International Games Committee, which in those days was a very powerful position in the federation, oversaw the entire national team program, but it wasn't paid. So, you know, I met Sunil, I went to the U.S. El Salvador qualifier at the St. Louis Soccer Park, which was about as bad a soccer match as I've ever seen in my life. We failed to beat them. That's what set up the game in Trinidad. And Sunil and I just really hit it off. We, I'm a little bit older than him, but we had a similar sense of humor. We both enjoyed knowledge for its own sake if you will just really kind of hit it off right away had sort of an irreverent approach to things but pretty driven it's been you know three decades plus and uh I, i got to know bruce a little bit not long after that and then hired him as you mentioned to run dc united and that's a very close you know when you're starting something in particular That becomes a really close relationship if done right. If you're the president general manager, if you don't have a really close relationship with the coach, then something's wrong. It's probably not going to work real well. So one thing I do want to mention is, you know, I've been bugging MLS, Don and and Dan Kordamanch for years under the old voting system that they needed to be much more aggressively involved in promoting players based on their MLS playing careers. There had never been a player inducted into the National Soccer Hall of Fame based strictly on their MLS career. The players who were inducted who had played in MLS were all national team players, guys like John Harkes or Tony Miola or Peter Vermese or Tab, and that's why they got in. And so I was thrilled, or I am thrilled, that I'm entering with Jaime Moreno, who is being inducted strictly based on his MLS playing career. And you know nobody is more deserving. He's certainly among the two or three greatest players in the history of MLS. He's also a, a very dear friend of mine. I'm very excited to be going in with him. Christy Rampone, Steve Sharundalo were both great national team players. Carlos Bocanegra, of course, who was inducted technically or elected last year, another great national team player who I've known for years. For me, it's a a phenomenal class to be entering with.
1: Kevin, as we wrap it up, this is never easy, particularly when you're somebody like you that doesn't necessarily love talking about himself and it's tough, but I mean, you are going in the Hall of Fame. It's well-deserved. It's not easy to get in the Hall of Fame as you know, but as you think about your legacy, your time with U.S. Soccer, your time with Pro, your time with Phil Anschutz, helping Anschutz Entertainment Group and then going to U.S. Club.
2: How do you want people to remember you, Kevin Payne? I hope they'll remember me in a few ways. My father told me once, if you tell the truth, you don't have to remember what you said. And so I've, I've tried to be truthful. I hope that I've gotten more diplomatic over the years, but I still try to be truthful. And i hope that people will remember how deeply passionate about the game i was and there were times in the early years in particular of even you know before mls but certainly the early years of mls where i you know probably a lot of people think that i was really impatient and not the most accepting of anything less than 100% because i i i felt I'm a student of history and I felt that we were all on the front lines of making history. And I know that it's people who don't recognize the importance of their contributions who often can set back the course of of history, if you will, by not committing themselves adequately and not recognizing the significance of what they have to contribute. So I hope that I am remembered as somebody who gave the sport really everything I had and tried to get others around me to do the same.
1: I think that's a fair assessment. And that's how I always think of you then, now, and forever. Kevin Payne, thank you so much for being on Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast. More importantly, congratulations on your well-deserved recognition going into the U.S. Soccer Hall of Fame. Dean, Christian, thank you very, very much. Thank you, Kevin. Also, thanks to Andrea Wheeler from the ECNL, our producer, Colin Thrash. I'm Dean Linke saying we'll see you in two weeks for another edition of Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast.
0: Thanks for listening to Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast. For more information on the ECNL, visit us at www.thecnl.com and if you have a suggestion for the show or a great idea for a guest please email us at info@theecnl.com at breaking the line the ecnl podcast is an ecnl production ecnl more than a league